Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. So, parenting is complex. Uh, every kid's unique. Sometimes you might luck out and you get a kid who's like you, and so you have this inside scoop on kind of how to shape things and word things to get them to do what you're wanting them to do. And other times you get kids who are like mystery kids. It's like the kinder surprise. You don't really know what's in there and break open the egg and you just can't figure them out. You, you tell them to go left and they go right and you tell them this and that and they do the complete opposite. And you're just thinking, I have no clue what's going on. So parenting is also humbling because being a parent, it's constantly changing. It starts out with the newborn stage, which I wasn't a fan of until about six months. And then even when Kinsley was born, I honestly don't even remember too much of the first two years of her life. All of a sudden she turned two and I'm like, oh, we have another kid with us because it was just busy with the first one. But nothing stays the same. And, and last week we kind of touched on it that there's seasons in parenting. And that you go through the toddlers and then the bit older and then teenage years, which uh, other than my experience in student ministries, I don't have a clue of. So uh, parents who are going through that, uh, grace and peace be with you. Extend it to me when I get there because I'm going to be banging my head against the wall as well. But when they're young, you're thinking about keeping your kids safe. And as they get older and they're engaging with life, you're now then... You're still what? <laughs> yeah, you're still thinking about keeping them safe, but then also how to navigate the ups and downs because they're starting to become more independent. Ah, man. But just know that these seasons are hard, that there are seasons that are going to be harder than others, and you can't wait for them to just pass and be behind you, and that's okay. Uh, when I realized I could have the freedom to say I didn't like the first six months of the newborn stage, it took a weight off my shoulders, to be honest, because I'm like, oh, I can actually say that, because some people are like, no, this is the best stage ever, and I'm like, no, thanks. I don't want to go through that again. But the more you can name the season, you'll know that it's just a season. So last week, we looked at the greatest gift you can give your kid is to be fully alive yourself. And as we unpacked it, we looked at naming our fears or perhaps naming the seasons, being emotionally available to connect with our kids, choosing joy, and then extending grace to yourself because no one has ever launched this rocket before. And that's a theme that we've been repeating week after week. And if you happen to miss it, you can always catch it on Facebook, on our website, on podcasts, whatever. But uh, that's the quick recap for you. Because I believe that as we kind of take a look at last week's guideposts, it will help us prepare for what we're talking about tonight, which is the art of keeping your kid talking. And this one hits close to home because I was that kid who didn't like to open up to my parents. I still don't. Uh, we sometimes have a hard time knowing what to talk about or how to navigate that conversation. But I was over there the other night for Thanksgiving dinner and they actually told me some tricks that they used, which I thought was very insightful for tonight's message. So I'll share those with you shortly. But what I discovered during my time pastoring in student ministries was that some parents have this free-flowing relationship between them and their kids. 
And Amanda and I would always be like, wow, like that's kind of the, the parenting style that we want, to just be able to have this, this free-flowing relationship and this relationship that you could talk about anything and everything with our kids. So tonight's guidepost is that the goal of parenting is to keep your kid talking. Because ultimately, I, I think sometimes it boils down to this one goal, is to just keep them talking. Because if they're talking, then you have this free-flowing relationship, and you can actually have a relationship with them. So I'm not talking about keeping them talking for talking's sake, because those of us in the toddler years were just like, oh, just stop talking. But like I said at the beginning of the series, what might frustrate us now about our kids will eventually come back and turn to a 180 and frustrate us later because the kid who won't stop talking now, when they hit the teenage years, we're going to be like, ah, oh, I just wish they would talk to me. But here's the thing. We have to work hard to keep the communication flowing. It's not as easy as it sounds. Like, sure, talk it out. Keep the relationship going. Talk about anything and everything. It's easy to say. It's so much harder to do. And during my time in youth ministry, I, I remember this one occurrence. There, there were several. But this one occurrence, we started our Wednesday night program, and I'm at the front of the group, and I open up in prayer. And I'm not even done, and all of a sudden I hear this one kid who who's, uh, was a major part of our youth group. He just starts screaming at this other student at the top of his lungs and just trying to think of the most explicit words he could call this person. So we wrap up the prayer and I shoot out into the hallway and the other leaders then started the games and they carried on the rest of the night. But this kid at first, he, he tried running away for a while and then finally we sat down and he thought I was gonna call his parents and kick him out of youth group or send him home that night. And I just said, talk to me, T tell me what's going on. And, and we chatted and he beat around the bush for the longest time. But then finally, I don't know what triggered. I, I believe that actually it was the Holy Spirit working in his life because he just, something switched and he started opening up and peeling back layer after layer after layer about what was going on in his life. And at the end of our time together, it was almost the whole two hours of our youth group. This, this guy had been weeping in my office and he says, can I go to the girls' small group that this one student was part of, and can I apologize? And I said, well, let's not go to the whole small group because that's, it's just one person. And he said, no, most of them went to a Christian school down the street of this particular small group. And, and he's like, I, I've been pretty nasty to all of them. And here this kid went up, who's probably 14 at the time, tears in his eyes, and he just apologized and, and poured out his heart for, and shared what he was going through with them and asked for their forgiveness. And I just remember that moment and that night, seeing God at work, seeing this kid transform from a screaming, expletive uh, <laughs> maniac to this kid who was just so tender-hearted and just asking, can I please have your forgiveness. And I think it shaped the way that I wanted to be with our kids. And it's a lot easier to say this as a youth pastor, because I only have to deal with the kids two hours a week, maybe three if we go out for something. But 
it's a, so much harder to take this posture as a parent because there are things we're wanting to teach our kids. There are rights and wrongs, and, and we're just so used to them that it's so easy to just immediately react and kind of shut things down. But what I witnessed was God at work in this kid's heart by not reacting. So what does this mean for parenting? Say your kid comes home and says that a friend got busted for having pot. You freak out and you get all tense. What have you just communicated? Are they more or less likely to tell you something in the future? You see, your kids are trying to work out their thoughts on the situation. And our job is to help them deal with it. Ask them questions from a place of non-judgmental interest. And again, this is where it's easier as the youth pastor a couple hours a week than it is a parent. But you know what? You might be asking, but I have strong feelings about that. That's what got me off the bandwagon. That's what made me fall off the path. But I believe the goal then is to earn the right to share those strong feelings that you have. So in other words, slow down, Take a deep breath and hold your tongue so that you can enter into this space with your kid. Because when your kid tells you something, they're confiding in you. They're asking you a question. They're saying, can you be trusted to hold this with me and not make a mess of this? And it's funny because th this is exactly how I was with my parents. I'd throw out something or may maybe a friend did this or it just it, it put out kind of the bait. And if they freaked out, it's like, okay, let's shut that down, wrap it up. But can you be trusted to hold this with me and not make a mess of this thing? They're inviting you into their space, into dialogue. But if we try and force our own thing, if we try and tell them the right and the wrong, the black and the white, they can kick us out just like that and just the walls come up. But the question is, but what if you really need to share what you really need to share? What if this is a, a major thing? Well, let me put it this way. Your kid knows pretty much everything about what you already think about everything. Your kid gets it. They've been living with you. They've been absorbing it. They're sponges. They already know your views on almost everything but they're just testing to see if this is a safe place. If you can hold the sacred trust, then they'll probably eventually ask you at some point, what do you think? Then, it's at that time, then you can actually be more clear and more passionate when they invite you to share that because they'll even be listening to what you have to say. And that's the exciting part, is if we earn that, that trust that we can enter into this and they'll peel back a layer and they'll be listening because we've earned it. So work hard to be the, the kind of parent, the kind of person that these kids can talk to. So don't respond with stress and fear and worry. Instead, be a non-anxious presence. But this means that we have to dig in to be brave, innovative, and creative. Because like I said, every kid is different. So therefore, you have to watch your kids. What makes them open up? What makes them shut down? And again, everyone is going to be different. 
This is what I found out on Thursday night. My parents would take me for drives. I had no idea. I just thought my dad liked drives in the country. And uh, they would take me for drives. They'd be like, Kev, come on in the car. We've, we've got some errands to do. And I would just look out the window. And I guess after talking about just everyday things, then I would begin letting them know what was going on in my life, in my head, in my heart. And they'd be able to ask questions. And without me even realizing it, I opened up. And actually, it's funny that I didn't know that that's what they were doing because I started using that in youth ministry too. I would say, hey, I have an errand to do. Want to come with me? And especially guys, they would open up to me as we'd be sitting side by side and not making that, that direct face-to-face -face eye contact. And if they didn't open up, well, then it was just a very awkward car ride as we sat there in silence. But Dr. William McRae, he was the president of OBC, which is now Tyndale University College over in Toronto. He shared with my parents uh, back, they thought it was in the 80s. But they shared with him that his, he shared with them that his daughter was having trouble as a teenager and wouldn't open up to either him or his wife. And he, he, he knew something was going on, so he began praying about it and asking God how he could connect with, this, with his daughter. And what he discovered was that at night, once she would turn off her lights, he would go knock on her door and ask if he could come in. He would then go into her room, keep the lights off, and just lay on the floor next to her while she was in bed. And again, he would just ask just what was going on in life, what just mundane questions. But over time, she began letting him in on what was going on, these burdens that she was carrying. And during these dark evening conversations, while she lay in bed and her dad laid on the floor next to her, she was able to release all of this stuff that was weighing her down. And eventually, years later on her wedding day, she told him, Dad, I'm so glad you did that because I think I might have taken my life you hadn't. Thank you. And this is the heart of what's driving this, that sometimes the goal is to just keep your kid talking because they might not want us in on what they're carrying, but they are carrying some heavy things. And we know that we, we love them. We, we want to walk with them through it, but we have to work hard at keeping this communication flowing. Which leads me to the second guidepost, which is it's really, really, really important that your kids learn how to ask questions. Questions are the lifeblood. So I have three verses here. Exodus 12, 27 says, When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them it's the Passover. Exodus 13, 14 says, In the days to come when your son asks, what does this mean? Say to your son, with, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And then Deuteronomy 6.20, which I think we looked at in the first week. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the laws? What I find fascinating in this is that there's an assumption in these texts that your kid is asking you the questions. For some humor is... Before all of these statements come up about your kid asking you, it actually says, teach your kids this and this and this, 
And then it says, when your kid asks you, what does this mean? And I kind of thought that's ironic because no matter how hard you try and teach your kid, they still have the questions. Why? Why? (laughs) Even in scripture. But what's fascinating is that your kid is asking you the question. And questions, they're not threatening. They're not a problem. I believe they're the point. They're based on the assumption that this is how you and your kid relate. Your kid is asking, why do we do this? What does it mean? And the assumption is that you have owned your own path, your own faith, your own belief to such a degree that you can actually engage with your kid and their questions, with your questions and your own responses. And that's why I believe that it's the responsibility of a parent to teach your kid how to ask questions. Questions are how we grow. They're how our children grow. Especially in the toddler age when it's just why, why, why. They're learning. They're exploring. But let's not squash that. So how do you do this? Well, first, ask your kid what they think. You can start this at a super early age. Ask them this all the time and never stop asking them interesting questions about what they think. Because every time you do this, you're actually teaching your kid about their voice. You're teaching them that their voice matters. The one thing your kid will definitely draw on in the future is their ability to think and to ask questions. You're teaching them that the world is interesting. You're you're teaching them that they're here to engage with the world and not just to passively participate. And when they ask questions, you're giving them your experience of the world. You as a parent get these opportunities to explain to your kid how meaningful and powerful and significant something is for you. So when your kid asks, why do we do this? What does it mean? You get to bring them into your beautiful, meaningful, powerful experiences that you've had and that have shaped you. But I think the other thing that it might expose is that if you can't answer the question, then maybe you need to rethink your own path. The question that they're asking might actually be a gift to you because it opens you up to exploring. See, questions are rooted in humility. And it begins with the assumption that there's more. There's more to this. There's more to life. Boredom is actually a spiritual disease when you don't think there's anything more. Questions, though, are rooted in this expanding view of the universe. That that there is more, that things can be better. And I believe that questions are driven by wonder, especially the the toddlers asking why all the time. There's this, this wonder. There's more to learn. There's more to experience. There's more to stand in awe of. So if we want our kids to do well, we need to understand that questions are at the root of all meaning. They're at the root of all meaningful work. How do we do this better? How do we help more people? How can we get water to these remote villages? How can we be more efficient in, in order to make the world a better place? See, questions reveal that everything is up for discussion. As soon as something is off limits, you're communicating something by putting it in the dark. And this never leads to health. 
or wholeness. But when you allow questions, you're keeping the lights on. You're making your home the kind of place where your kids can explore and discover. They can go into their pain and their agony and know that it's okay. And I love it that Jesus is asked endless questions all throughout Scripture. And he only gives an actual straightforward answer a handful of times. The other times, he asks questions. He says, how do you read it? What do you think it means? How do you interpret it? All of us have our own journey. And all of us are wrestling with these, these questions of, of meaning and life and purpose. So when you're asked a question, you have to think through, who am I? What do I believe? What does matter to me? Where am I headed? What kind of life am I going to live in the world? What kind of world am I going to make with my God-given potential? So these passages that we looked at in the Torah, when the kids ask, what's the meaning of this? We have to understand that questions of meaning will never go away. We're still asking, what does this mean? Meaning, it's like the oxygen of the soul. And without it, we lose our way, we lose our breath, and things begin to grow dead. And it was actually Rick Warren's purpose-driven life that, that got me questioning, what's the meaning of it all? And that began leading me back toward Jesus during a time that I was trying to run hard the other way. You see, questions are an opportunity for us to share with our kids our stories. The, what happened to us, what shaped us, what's formed us. And as scary as it sounds, it, it, it's a way for us to even share our testimony, our, our faith in Jesus. That's it, just a, the story of what God's been doing in our life. And is God doing something in our life currently? Because he's living, he's alive, and, and he's helping us and healing us and restoring us. And he's doing all of these things. And we need to be communicating that with our kids. But I think it's through questions. Questions are how you get at meaning. And you can't avoid the human search for meaning. But taking it one step further, I also don't believe that we can avoid our human search for Jesus. Because to me, meaning and Jesus go hand in hand. And here's the beauty, if, if you don't agree with me and you think that there's meaning beyond Jesus, that's fine. Because I'm not here to change your mind. That's God's job. I'm here to help raise questions and point you toward what I have found to be true. I mentioned at the beginning of the series that this is based on an audio, a three-hour uh, audio lecture by Rob and Kristen Bell entitled the same thing, Launching Rockets. And I, and I loved the imagery that they gave for this. And this next guidepost, I have to give him credit for because I couldn't think of a better way to put it myself. And it's raise good punks. There's just no other way to really get, especially at that word punk. Because you see, there's three kinds of wisdom. There's your pre-conventional wisdom, your conventional wisdom, and your post-conventional wisdom. 
And as a parent, you're most often helping your kid move from this pre-conventional wisdom into the conventional wisdom. And what I mean by that is when you teach them to make their bed, brush their teeth, or greet adults by shaking their hand and looking them in the eye, you're essentially showing them that there is a way we do things around here. That's conventional wisdom. You're moving them from the pre-conventional wisdom to the conventional wisdom of your home. It's the way that we've agreed to live together. Conventional wisdom is you should save money, you should wear deodorant, you should eat your vegetables. We've been given these lists of how things are properly done. And all of our families have it, our, our churches have it, the, the different, uh, pretty much any gathering and relational thing, we have these conventional, this conventional wisdom at play. Pre-conventional wisdom is the two-year-old that says no to everything. It's, the, it's this place of immaturity that rebels against anything that feels like a standard or feels like a rule or feels like conformity. So you're helping your kid mature. You're helping them grow developmentally from this pre-conventional wisdom into conventional wisdom and the way your home is ordered, the way you do things. But then here's the twist. In other areas, and sometimes at the same time, you're helping them move from the conventional wisdom to post-conventional wisdom. Because the hallway at school, the clique of popular kids, etc., all have within them a conventional wisdom, how things are done. And sometimes what all the kids are doing is stupid, is destructive, is damaging. So at one level, you're teaching your kid conventional wisdom. This is how our family does things. This is how we, we behave in society. But on another level, you're needing to help your kids swim upstream, to challenge the wisdom of how it is, and to challenge, stand against, and critique the system, and to say, no, I'm not going to participate with that. Whether it's cheating, alcohol, drugs, promiscuity, driving drunk, insanely stressing out over academics, lessons, teams, or activities in which they're being driven to utter exhaustion. Sometimes you're helping your kid to subvert the dominant system and to challenge the mindless group thing. That's post-conventional wisdom. But some people only knew, know how to do what they see around them. They have no vision for life beyond the dominant conventional wisdom of their tribe. But this is where our job is to raise good punks, to help our kids move into this post-conventional wisdom when it's necessary. And what's funny is, as I was researching this point and studying it, I came across a documentary called The Other F Word. And it took a whole bunch of punk rockers, like uh, NoFX, MXPX, Blink-182, uh, Rise Against, and it, it, it looked at their life now as fathers. And it, and it explored some of their decisions, like should they have really gotten a tattoo across their forehead? And, and what does a dominatrix mean? Because they have it tattooed on their forearm. And, and they're now grappling with, oh man, how do I raise my kid that's four in this world that's, uh, I don't even know how to finish that thought, but just how do they raise them? How, how do, they were at one point, they had this stage and platform to push against the system 
and they were known as the punks. But now they're entering fatherhood and saying, okay, there's, there's some things we, we do need to teach them. They can't push against everything. And I think this is where it brings out the two kinds of punks. Your regular punk and your good punk. And that's why we're talking about raising good punks. Because the first one is from a place of immaturity. It's a place from this pre-conventional wisdom. It's where they just flip off whatever they don't like, whatever's uh, aggravating them. They spray paint anything that's, that's pushing them towards conformity or that they're trying to, uh, that they feel is trying to hold them to a standard or a rule. This is the immature pre-conventional wisdom punk. But a good punk is when you can teach your kid to challenge the system from a place of maturity and wisdom. This is the post-conventional punk. Because you see, you want your kid to learn the rules, the convention, so that your kid can break the rules when the rules need to be broken. And if you want to understand a little bit more about post-conventional wisdom, I think we just have to read the Gospels and the life of Jesus. Because Jesus learned and studied and knew the conventional wisdom of the religions and the religious leaders at the time. He knew the religious tribe, but he also knew through spending time with God through prayer what needed to be challenged. So in Mark chapter 22, I'll read five verses here. Uh, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? He entered the house of God, ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, some of that's cut off, is uh, Lord, even of the Sabbath. The conventional wisdom was saying, this is how we do Sabbath. But Jesus understood it well enough and saw the bigger picture that Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. So he challenged the system. The other example comes from the next chapter in Mark that says, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then they went off to plot how to kill Jesus. Because again, Jesus was confronting and challenging this conventional wisdom, the way we do things, the way it's always been done. But he was doing it from a place of wisdom, maturity, and most of all, love. And this is why I love this guidepost, that we need to raise good punks. Because not only is it about our kids being good punks, but in order to raise a good punk means we need to keep our inner punk alive. You need to know, learn, and understand the conventional wisdom, how we do things, so that if, when the time comes, 
we can step outside of that in order to follow Jesus. And that's why it's all about people. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's about people. It's not about just the system. It's not about just the structures and the organizations. Jesus isn't a religion. Following Jesus isn't a set of rules. Jesus is a person who's living, who's active, and invites us into a relationship with him. And sometimes the tribe is insisting, or what they're insisting is normal, is actually total insanity. But Jesus promises that a relationship with him through the help of the Holy Spirit will help us produce love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, so that we will have the courage, the wisdom, the passion, and the fire to challenge conventional wisdom if it's not the way of Jesus. So together, let's spur each other on to raise good punks who will also have the courage and the boldness to stand up and follow Jesus. And the last point is just to extend yourself grace. Because no one has ever launched this rocket before.